sentences. While locked up in prison, Marco Polo told the amazing story of his travels in the Far East, where few Europeans had been before. The tales held his fellow prisoner Rusticello transfixed, and he persuaded Marco Polo to let him write a book about them. The result was Il Milione, the book of a thousand things. When the Genoese finally released Marco Polo in 1299, he returned to Venice with the book, which was to make him famous. Copies were soon circulating all over Europe, and his adventures became the inspiration for many others to try their luck at exploring the fantastic lands to the east. Nearly two hundred years later, when Christopher Columbus set out on his famous voyage of discovery, he took a copy of Marco Polo's book with him. Marco Polo was born in Venice, in northern Italy, in 1254. This was a time of huge increase in the wealth and trade of the city. Situated at the northern tip of the Adriatic, Venice was perfectly placed as a route from the heart of Europe into Greece, the Balkans, and the Middle East. Ships from Venice traded all over the Mediterranean, and Marco's father, Niccolo, and his uncle, Maffeo, were both merchants who travelled extensively. However, Marco's family was interested in looking further than its near neighbours for trade. Silk, spices, and precious jewels of all kinds came into the ports of the eastern Mediterranean, but everyone knew that they had already come overland from the distant far east. This was where the Polos wanted to go. The Catholic Church also was interested in more contact with the East, wanting to convert the natives to Christianity. By the end of the 13th century, almost all the Middle East and the huge territory of China had been brought under the rule of the Mongols. These fierce warriors were nomads who had come pouring out of the great plains of Central Asia to conquer all the kingdoms of the East. Their great king, Kublai Khan, settled in China. And from his palace of Xanadu, he ruled a colossal empire. Niccolo and Maffeo Polo had already travelled once to the court of Kublai Khan, returning over six years later with letters for the Pope. But the Pope had died, and no successor had been appointed, so the letters could not be delivered, and the Polos returned to Venice. In 1271, they decided to go back to China. This time, taking the seventeen-year-old Marco with them, passing safely through Armenia, where a war was raging, they travelled south to Tabriz and from there to Hormuz on the Persian Gulf. In the desert, they saw black oil gushing out of the ground, and Marco noted that while it wasn't suitable for cooking, it made a very good fuel, and that some people rubbed it on their skins as an ointment. To cross the desert. They joined a lengthy caravan of merchants, trusting to safety in numbers. Even so, in a sandstorm, they were attacked by a large band of robbers called the Coronas. Marco was nearly captured, and after a fierce fight, they only just managed to drive them off. As the Coronas always attacked under the cover of these storms, it was believed that they could actually call them up by magic. When the Polos reached the Persian Gulf. They considered taking a ship for the next part of their journey, but the Arab dhows seemed to them too fragile to cross the Indian Ocean. So they carried on overland into Persia, and arrived two weeks later 
in the fertile kingdom of Mulehet. While they rested here, they were told the story of the old man of the mountain who used to rule there. This king had laid out a beautiful garden planted with fruit trees and stocked with exotic birds and animals. In the center of the garden stood a golden pavilion by which three streams ran, one of milk, one of honey, and the third of wine. If the old man of the mountain had an enemy, he would give one of his young soldiers a drink made from the drug hashish. While the young man slept, he would be carried into the garden so that when he woke he would believe himself to be in paradise. After a while he would be given hashish to drink again, and this time when he woke he would have returned to the king's court. Then the old man of the mountain would say to the youth that if he wished to go back to paradise, he must first kill the enemy. These young men were so reckless that they would brave any dangers to carry out their orders. Because of the hashish that they drank, they were called assassins, from the Arabic word hashashin, or hashish-eater. From Mulehet they traveled to the city of Talikhan, and across a huge grassy plain to the land the Mongols called the Roof of the World. They spent the winter living with the Mongols under the towering Pamir Mountains, as there was too much ice and snow to attempt to cross them. According to Rustichella's book, Marco described the Mongols as excellent archers, much given to hunting. Indeed, most of them are dependent for clothing on the skins of beasts, for cloth or fabric of any kind is very expensive among them. Their ladies wear pantaloons of cotton fabric in which they will put sixty or even a hundred ells of the stuff. This they do to make themselves look large in the hips, for the men of those parts think that to be a great beauty in a woman. In the spring they set off again, and it took them forty days to cross the mountain range. To their amazement, when they climbed right up into the mountains, they discovered a plateau with, Marco said, great numbers of all kinds of wild beasts, among others wild sheep of a great size, whose horns are a good six palms in length. From these horns the shepherds make great bowls to eat from, and they use the horns also to make fences for their cattle at night. When they came down from the mountains, they arrived at last in the Takla Makan Desert in western China. Here, Marco reported that strange voices and sounds like musical instruments and drums could be heard in the wind. Many travelers had disappeared by following these strange sounds into the desert and losing the trail, but Marco and his party managed to resist this. On reaching the magnificent city of Kang Chao, the Polos decided to rest, having been on the road for more than three and a half years. They stayed for some time before word reached them that Kublai Khan, hearing of their approach, had summoned them to his summer palace. Accompanied by the great Khan's messengers, they rode on to Xanadu. Although Kublai Khan had a magnificent palace in Beijing, he was most fond of his summer palace at Xanadu. It was made of marble and carved with thousands of statues of birds and animals. 
Around the palace lay sixteen miles of parkland, in which stood a pavilion made from thousands of strips of lacquered bamboo, laid like tiles so that the rain could not get in. Inside, the bamboo was gilded and painted with beautiful designs in red, green, and gold. The pavilion was held up by two hundred silken cords, so that it could be taken down and set up wherever the Khan wished. In this way, he lived nomadically, like his ancestors, always on the move, and at the same time, he was surrounded by all the art and luxury that the great country of China could afford. Polos arrived at his court. The Khan seems to have been favorably impressed, especially with young Marco, whom he took into his service. For the next seventeen years, the Polos worked for Kublai Khan. Niccolo and Maffeo remained at the imperial court, but Marco was soon sent out as an ambassador to carry the Khan's edicts to the far-flung kingdoms in his empire. In this capacity, he certainly visited Burma. Bengal in India, much of China, and many of the lands of the Mongols in Central Asia. For a long time, he stayed in the city of Hangzhou, on the east coast of China, which he thought to be the finest city in the world. Like his home of Venice, it was built on canals, but on a massive scale. According to Marco, the town walls were one hundred miles in circumference. In Rustichello's book, Marco describes many of the marvelous things he saw and heard in China. He talks of the wonderful porcelain and how the Chinese burnt coal and manufactured fire.